everyone, and welcome to the third episode of our podcast, Espresso with the Experts. Today, we have the honor to have my espresso with Professor Michael Gerard. Welcome, and thank you for being here with us today. My pleasure. So, Professor Michael Gerard is the founder and the faculty director of the Sabine Center for Climate Change Law. And uh, he has been also the chair of the Columbia faculty uh, for the Hurt Institute. And he wrote several books. We are going to discuss them during the interview, so I'm not going to introduce them now. But uh, now he's teaching at Columbia Law School and uh, he's teaching uh, several classes on climate change, environmental regulation and uh, environmental law. And uh, before joining Columbia University Law School faculty, Professor Gerard also practiced in New York as a lawyer. And most recently, he was a partner in charge of the New York office of Arnold and Porter, where he remains senior counsel today. So he has also chaired uh, the American Bar Association section of Environment, Energy and Resources and the New York City Bar Association's Executive Committee and the New York State Bar Association Environmental Law Section. The essence of the story is that uh, Professor Gerard is pioneering cutting-edge legal tools to address uh, climate change. So let's get started with the interview after this introduction. You have recently been working on two very interesting but complex topics. The first one is geoengineering and the second one is threatened nation islands. We will start from the first one. What is geoengineering? So climate engineering or geoengineering refers to the intentional large-scale manipulation of the Earth's climate. Uh, we're really talking about three different things here. Carbon capture and sequestration is the term usually used for putting devices on a, an industrial uh, facility like a power plant or a factory to prevent the carbon dioxide from escaping into the atmosphere. That's not really geoengineering. Uh, capturing the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, from the ambient air, is geoengineering, uh, carbon dioxide uh, removal. And uh, we do not yet have it at scale. All of the projections for how we meet our temperature targets suggest we need to do an enormous amount of removal of carbon dioxide from the ambient air. We've already put too much in the atmosphere. We need to remove a great deal of it. Uh, the technology is still being developed. It is right now extremely expensive and would be slow acting. Uh, but there are quite a few technologies that are being uh, experimented with uh, to see if, if it'll work. Uh, it has relatively few risks involved, uh, unless it's a technique that uses a lot of land or um, is, is done in the ocean. So special precautions need to be done for that. Solar radiation management is much different. Solar radiation management is a last resort. It's very scary. Uh, we're not sure if it would work. We're not sure what the side effects would be. Uh, we think that the likely technology would be to have a fleet of airplanes that are flying around all the time releasing um, aerosols or something into the upper atmosphere. Um, um, I th almost no one hopes that we actually do it, but there's a decent chance someone is going to try it. And for that reason, it's important to have some understanding of whether it would work, what its side effects would be, and to have some system of governance so that we can know uh, who should be able to do it and who not. Which legislation is 
already existing like to deal with this so like to deal with these new technologies and uh, what legislation is actually needed i know you have been working on this so we would love to know more we about actually it. don't have any legislation uh on uh, on those uh, on on carbon dioxide removal there are some tax credits that are available but nothing that um would require government permission but uh, that's not so bad because the particular activities are at a small scale and are not likely to have any negative effects except again when we get into the oceans and then we may need some uh, revisions to some of the international treaties on oceans with respect to solar radiation management there's really nothing uh it's not governed at all and of uh, the cost of it is low enough that a small country or even a very rich individual could undertake it and it would not be illegal which is a real problem uh and that's why uh, i think there should be international agreements on on solar radiation management since it's something that would have a global impact and it also has the potential for causing global conflict if some countries want it and some countries don't we should have some mechanism to uh, determine the legitimacy of particular activities and is there already any evaluation of uh, like who could be the losers or who could be the winners from uh, for example solar radiation management so could it impact like any specific group so it's uh, scaring like solar radiation so it less it should reach the ground do we expect like some specific uh, interest groups dealing with it there is, there is concern that it could affect global weather patterns in ways that are not completely predictable um that uh, it it might affect the monsoons it might affect drought and so forth we don't know what we do know is that the climate change that is happening is having terrible global impacts and so in thinking about the question it's not only might solar radiation management have negative impacts which is very important but also could it counter the enormously negative impacts we know are already happening as a result of climate change the many of the leading groups in the sector in particular in carbon capture and storage technologies seem to be connected to multinational oil companies so we have some examples we have a shell that owns quest carbon capture and storage we have uh, exxon mobil that uh, um, has a joint development agreement with global thermostat for example so we never know like the idea is that uh, car, like oil companies are going to try to maximize their profit and uh, it might make sense that uh, in a world where we're going toward green technologies all companies want to participate in pro- like developing green technologies because uh, it's a new market uh, is uh, a market with little competition and uh, um, there is a lot of funding needed and all companies do have funding so this is on one side and uh, um though we know also that uh, the big american giants in oil multinationals chevron and uh, uh, exxon mobil are not only investing in carbon capture but they are also doubling up on drilling doubling down on drilling uh, on uh, carbon and on oil carbon capture and storage technologies do not directly hurt oil companies instead funding for renewables uh, increase competition so it is a problem for oil companies and uh, um, more regulation also on carbon dioxide production hurts oil companies so 
do we need to concern about the fact that uh, multinational oil companies might be trying to uh, invest in uh, these technologies just to pretend that they are trying to behave green and to try to do business as usual? And uh, together with this, I would like to know, is there any legal instrument that should try to bring the investments and the research in these technologies in the right direction. One of your books, uh, Global Climate Change and the US Law, I went through it and um, something you tell us in this book is that the oldest and most developed body of US law related to climate change concerns federal policies and programs for scientific research. So do, in this case, do federal funding for scientific research in these technologies could make have an important role? Well, there's a lot in there. Yes. <laughs> um, there is now a great deal more public funding for carbon capture research uh, than there used to be. The uh, Bipartisan Infrastructure Act of 2001 and the Inf Inflation Reduction Act of 2002 and the CHIPS Act of 2002 all have considerable uh, federal money for that kind of research. Uh, you're certainly right that uh, the oil companies are spending a lot on that. Um, Many of the technologies that would be used are technologies related to what the oil companies have expertise in, you know, um, uh, storing uh, gases underground, uh, uh, pipeline infrastructure, and so forth. Um, there's no question that um, more oil drilling and gas development is a negative for climate change. The inflation, I'm sorry, the International Energy Agency has said that in order to meet our temperature targets, we don't need any more oil and gas exploration, but billions of dollars are being spent on that. I, I'm not as troubled by the the research being done by these uh, um, uh, companies as long as it doesn't affect policy in a negative way. Um, uh, carbon capture and sequestration and uh, uh, carbon dioxide removal and solar radiation management should absolutely not be seen as substitutes for moving away from fossil fuels and reducing greenhouse gas emissions. That has to be our top priority. But under all scenarios, we're going to need a lot of carbon capture and sequestration, and we're going to need a lot of carbon dioxide removal. Solar radiation management, I hope not. Uh, but uh, we do need a lot of, of, of these technologies, um, and uh, it, the fact that the oil companies are putting a lot of money into it uh, is not uh, troubling me, uh, again, as long as they are not affecting the underlying policies. So after decades of gridlock, Biden finally managed to sign a, a useful agreement for climate change, useful policies, the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, and it incentivized clean energy, electric cars, electric homes, and investing in technologies to ramp up manufacturing. However, the Inflation Reduction Act come from a very complex compromise. As, you, like, as we saw, for example, with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the policies that we are doing right now are not going to help us be on track with, uh, the, uh, with curbing climate change. So we need faster-paced policies. That what are the policies that we are going to see most likely be passed in Congress and Senate? What is going to be of the uh, carbon tax that has been discussed so much? So the Inflation Reduction Act was a major step in the right direction. It makes hundreds of billions of dollars available for clean energy. It won't get us all the way to where we need to be with our 
greenhouse gas reduction goals, but it, it gets us much of the way there, and, and there will be challenges in in implementing it. Uh, it does include a portion of a carbon tax. It includes a fee on methane emissions, um, uh, which I think is going to be very significant. It does not have a fee on carbon dioxide. Um, there are many things that the Biden administration can do and is doing under existing laws without the need for more action by Congress on controlling emissions from motor vehicles, which are now the largest single source of emissions in the U.S., controlling emissions from coal-fired power plants, which are the second largest, and various other things. So the Biden administration is doing uh, a great deal. Um, in terms of what else Congress might do, um, there are only two things that I think might plausibly happen in this Congress with the split control. There's a lot of discussion about permit reform, about speeding up the permitting of, of facilities. And the big issue there is the Democrats want uh, to speed up the approval of renewables, and the Republicans want to speed up the, the permitting of fossil facilities. And coming up with some kind of compromise is challenging, but there are a lot of discussions of that. The other, But there may be legislation on that. There may also be legislation on a uh, carbon border uh, adjustment, on imposing a fee on the importation of items like steel and cement, whose manufacture generated a lot of greenhouse gases. Uh, Europe is heading in the direction of that. Uh, the U.S. might as well. I don't see other legislation coming uh, out of this Congress. And what happens in the next Congress after the 2024 election will obviously depend on who's in control of the House and the Senate and the White House. And nobody knows that uh, yet. Uh, but uh, but I think we are making significant progress. Let me just say, I, I don't uh, agree with the thought that uh, the Inflation Reduction Act has negatives in that it is impeding other legislation. I think that act was absolutely as far as we could go with this Congress. Um, and that's one reason why electoral action is so important, uh, that it really, really matters who wins elections. Yes. And I hope is that also by seeing the positive effects of the Inflation Reduction Act, maybe it could also convince more people about the importance of curbing climate change. We see what is the effects. That's right. And it's also going to create a very large number of jobs. We're going to have literally millions of jobs in, in clean energy and building the wind and the solar and the transmission and everything else. And that uh, hopefully will have a political effect when people see how many jobs are created by this. Exactly, exactly. With some uh, increasing uh, than interest also in uh, passing these kind of policies. The Environmental Policy Agency is telling us that global sea uh, level has risen by eight inches since uh, 1870s. It doesn't seem much when you like say it like that, but uh, it's actually threatening some like nation islands, in particular in the Pacific and in the Indian Ocean. So what are some examples of these nation islands are like the Marshall Islands, Kiribati, Tuvalu and the Maldives, for example. And uh, this situation opens up to some important and scary questions. So if a nation completely goes underwater, because that what could happen with these islands, is it still a nation? And uh, does the uh, nation still have a seat, for example, at the UN? And uh, what about the inhabitants of those islands? Like, they're going to be displaced. Are they going to be citizens like of some nation? What is going to happen with them? 
Well, the short answer is we don't know for sure because that's never happened. Uh, but there's an, an international agreement called the Montevideo Convention, which set forth the basic rules on what you need to be in order to be a state. You need to have a permanent population. You need to have defined territory. You need to have a government, and you need to have the ability to have relations with other countries. So as as long as you have some population living in a place, and it has to be a permanent population, not lighthouse keepers, uh, not visitors. If you have a permanent population there uh, and a, a self-government uh, on land, you're still a state. So it's probably going to be a very long time before uh, any of these atoll nations are completely uninhabitable. Um, if that were to happen, there's no procedure in the uh, in the UN Charter to expel a state. No state has ever been expelled. It would probably require a vote of the United Nations General Assembly upon a recommendation of the National Security Council. There is now some active discussion of trying to get international agreement in advance that a state is perpetual. Uh, there are international doctrines uh, for that, but if there were an international agreement that a, a state will never cease to be a state, even if its people have been dispersed, I think that would be a step in the right direction. But it's not a matter of urgency, because it'll be decades at least before any of these countries are completely uninhabitable. As to the citizenship of the people who are displaced, that will be the choice of the countries where they go. Um, the international community cannot readily say that certain countries have to give citizenship to people from other countries. There are international norms on letting them in and treating them humanely, which not every country follows. Um, there's some discussion of having continued citizenship in a country that is that is underwater. Hopefully it would be dual citizenship so there's a meaningful passport and so forth. All this is the subject of a lot of quiet behind-the-scenes discussions these days, but we don't have a clear resolution to it. So we saw that in the U.S. there have been a lot of natural disasters, like between the worst, we remember, for example, uh, Hurricane Katrina and uh, Maria, and the idea is that also New York was eaten by a um, hurricane, so Sandy. And uh, I would like to know from you that uh, should we expect a situation like the day after tomorrow in New York? So how does local and state level can prevent or take care of these natural disasters that are going to come and hit the city much more than before? Well, I don't think the scenario in the movie The Day After Tomorrow was going to happen where you had this very rapidly moving ice sheet. Um, but very bad things can happen. Uh, Hurricane Sandy happened when Michael Bloomberg was the mayor, and he set up um, a very important uh, uh, program to try to anticipate what may happen with climate change in New York City and to prepare for it. Um, and so there have been quite a few changes, for instance, to building codes to require new buildings on the shoreline to be uh, protected from uh, from flooding and so forth. There is now what is in essence a seawall that is being constructed around the lower east side of Manhattan and will in a form wrap around the, the lower tip, which is where the financial district where Wall Street is located to protect them. Of course, that's where the money is, so it's not surprising where a lot of the resources are going to protecting that. 
the Army Corps of Engineers has an important study to try to decide how to protect the New York, New Jersey region from extreme flooding, and they have a proposal that involves some sea gates, not as large as those we see in Venice, but some sea gates, and also a lot of sea walls around the coastline. Those are going to be very controversial. Uh, so many studies are being done. Serious examination is being done. I don't know how it'll turn out. Uh, the the uh, the threat of sea level rise is very serious for New York and for every coastal city in the world. Uh, so, uh, some cities are even more vulnerable than New York. New Orleans is a is a prime example, and society is not yet fully grappling with those issues to the extent. Uh, that it needs to, but we are ser seeing serious discussions and some serious money in some places. So um, I would like uh, to ask you a more personal question. And uh, we know that before joining the Columbia faculty at the law school department, you were working as a lawyer. And also now you're doing uh, some side works, maybe. And you were in particular uh, a lawyer at Arnold and Porter, and you served as a partner in charge of the New York City office and worked on environmental practices already. So it is uh, a long history on environmental uh, policy and regulation and law. And uh, um, we would like to know first that, like, how is your experience different as a lawyer and as a professor working on the same topic? Well, of course, if you're a lawyer in a law firm, you're representing clients, and your job is to help the clients solve their problems. Um, and it's very uh, interesting, challenging work. Uh, you, you have less choice in what you work on uh, than in academia. In academia, we have the luxury of being able to choose what issues we want to do, what positions we want to take, what we want to write about. Uh, so many of the similar skills are involved in both settings, but there are uh, uh, different uh, forces at work uh, in a law firm versus in, in a law school. Okay, yes, I can see it. And that uh, I think that maybe like also this position as a professor and as a researcher give you more like freedom and time also to work on this cutting edge uh, uh, kind of legislation. So for example, to try to understand and develop uh, something that is not there yet. I guess it is easier to do it from the academia. Than oh, the, certainly. Uh, uh, you know, as a, as a lawyer in a law firm, you're generally charging not only by the hour, but by the sixth of an hour. <laughs> so you have to keep track of, of everything you do, and, and uh, you want to make sure that you um, are working enough hours and so forth. It's a completely different situation in academia. And so we're reaching the end of the interview, and uh, I would like to ask uh, two final questions. Uh, the first one regards uh, uh, the fact that uh, you have founded and uh, You are the faculty director of the Sabine Center for Climate Change. And uh, so the center develops legal tools to fight climate change, trains law students and uh, to train lawyers. It also provides to the public some useful instruments such as the Inflation Reduction Act Tracker and uh, the um, deregulation, Trump deregulation tracker. I've been on the website, as you can see, and uh, it seems very interesting both for specialists but also for uh, maybe people in other departments and other uh, uh, researchers, but even for the general public. So 
can you tell us a little bit of how the center started? Like, how did the idea happen and how did it develop? What are the useful tools in it? And uh, what are the possibilities as well for students to collaborate with the center and uh, help out with it or learn from it? So in 2008, I was still practicing law and I was approached by the dean of Columbia Law School asking if I was interested in talking to them about joining the faculty to teach environmental law. And after a lot of thought, uh, I uh, called the dean back and said, how about if I join the faculty to teach environmental law and also start up a center on climate change law? Um, my first book on the subject, Global Climate Change in U.S. Law, the first edition had just been published. I had become extremely concerned about the issue of climate change. Uh, so I started it up when I joined the faculty in 2009. Uh, we've been uh, fortunate to ha have uh, some generous donors and also Um, uh, project work. So we now have 11 full-time lawyers um, um, and are active uh, internationally, nationally, and locally. Um, our best-known uh, public resource is our climate litigation database, which keeps track of all the climate change lawsuits around the world. So far, we've counted about 2,200 of them, of which about 70% are from the Uh, United States. Uh, we have summer interns who uh, uh, both uh, law students and, and, and graduate students and undergraduates from Columbia. Um, I have research assistants and teaching assistants. Um, uh, we sometimes bring in other people. Um, we put on a lot of uh, public events and events for the, the student body, the university community. Uh, we have a free mailing list, several free mailing lists. You go on our website, just Google um, Sabin Center for Climate Change Law, you'll find it. And we would love for people to uh, follow our activities. Perfect, exactly. I, that I visited the website and I would strongly suggest it as well. So I wanted to bring it up. And so your very, very last question is going to be very personal. And we're asking it during every interview, and the idea is, what is your sliding door moment? So what is the moment you decided to work on climate in particular, and how did it happen? Well, let me say, I decided to become an environmental lawyer, uh, largely because I grew up in Charleston, West Virginia, which is a town dominated by the petrochemical industry. So it has a lot of air pollution and water pollution, and that's what sparked my interest in becoming uh, going into the environmental field. And so I decided to go to law school so that I could become an environmental lawyer. Uh, my interest in, in, in climate change uh, uh, really took off in the early 2000s, just as I was reading more and more about the emerging science. And I wouldn't say there was any one moment, but I decided that uh, my next book, I'd already done several books by then, but my next book would be On, on climate change, and that was the book Global Climate Change in U.S. Law. And, and uh, doing all the research and, and, and work on that really made me extremely concerned and convinced me that um, since I had some expertise in the area that I should really devote my time to that issue more than any other, and that's what I've been doing since and expect to do for the balance of my career. So thank you very much, Professor Michael Gerard, and um, thank you. Everybody, uh, this was our third episode of Espresso with the Experts. We'll see each other uh, in the next episodes. Meanwhile, follow us on Instagram. You can find the episode also on Spotify, YouTube, and on our website. Mm -hmm.